All right, so tonight we're going to talk about work. And uh, the more I think about this and, and engage with this, the less I want to uh, plow through it. I want to, this is, it's such a huge part of our lives as men is work. Um, and, and so this is coming, of course, from Genesis 2.15, to work it and to keep it. Uh, and so we're going to do at least this week on work, uh, probably in the next week too, um, and then into keeping. So, but before I get into that, I did want to see, does anybody have any questions that are uh, percolating? This is week three, so we've got five weeks, including tonight, left. Anything on the front burner for you before we jump in? Okay, well then turn to Daniel 3. We're going to look at our next portrait of masculine virtue. And this is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the label I chose tonight, and there's other labels you could put on this, but is stalwart faith. And stalwart is a word that isn't used uh, a whole lot. But I think it should come back. It's a great word. It has connotations of loyalty and strength. And, and one of my favorite uh, connotations is dependability. You know, when you have a friend that you know that you could call anytime, and if it's at all possible, they're going to drop everything that they can, and, and everything, and, and to come and help you. That's a stalwart friend, right? They're dependable, they're reliable, they have strength to be of assistance to you. And this uh, is a picture of stalwart faith. It's a faith that can be relied upon. And of course, where is that revealed in a fallen world? Well, in suffering and trial, right? In attack. And so I'm going to read uh, Daniel 3, the whole chapter. Uh, it's a little bit longer, but I think uh, when we hear the whole chapter, it helps us to appreciate what's going on. So, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, so it's about 90 feet, and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Do you get the impression that Nebuchadnezzar had set up an image? <laughs> it's like, when the Bible, you know, the Bible is not that big a book. When it repeats something three times in short compass, we're supposed to note that, right? It seems that Nebuchadnezzar had set up an image. That seems like a problem in God's word. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. There he is again. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay? So you will worship me on penalty of death. Okay? That, that is... And, and what happens? Everybody falls down and worships. 
Okay? Nobody's excluded yet. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down to worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And then this is a great question. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Who is the God who will deliver you? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I think that's eight times already that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Okay, so I called out three um, 
principles or truths about stalwart faith. And again, just like last week, there's plenty more that we could get at. But the one I want to start with is stalwart faith fears the Lord. You know, we can be so familiar with these stories, and especially if you grew up in church, and especially if you grew up with the flannel graphs, right? And, uh, you know, the little dudes like falling into the fiery furnace, and oh no, they're not hurt, right? But if, if you appreciate the magnitude of what's going on, you know, you appreciate that the furnace was heated so tremendously. You appreciate, I, I think we should appreciate this more now than we would have a year ago, the effect of public pressure on these men. Imagine if everyone around you is bowing down and worshiping, right? What's the effect of that? How does that affect you, right? Well, you know, is it really that big a deal? Maybe you can cross your toes or something when you worship and every, you know, then it's just, it's, you don't really mean it. You don't really mean it. It's actually a big debate in mission circles with Muslims because uh, Muslims tend to be so hardcore. How, how much does a Muslim convert to Christianity need to make an issue of their conversion? Can they be insiders? Can they still go to mosque? But, but when, they, when it's prayer time, they're, they're actually bowing down to, to Jesus, not to Allah, right? It's that kind of, you know, is there a way that we can negotiate? And these men feared the Lord. They knew that if they bowed down to worship that God, that would be idolatry. That'd be disobedience. It'd be disloyalty. It'd be compromise. And so they, and, and, and notice what Nebuchadnezzar said uh, in verse 28. Uh, he's praising God who delivered them, who trusted in him and set aside the king's commands and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. That was obvious to Nebuchadnezzar, right? And, and this kind of thing is not, I mean, this is obviously kind of an exceptional circumstance, but it's not unusual in church history that Christians have had to draw a line and say, we're not gonna, we're not gonna do that. And, and often, and we've talked about this, if you might recall, uh, sometimes we think that persecution's gonna come when people are gonna say, you can't worship Jesus, right? You can't believe in Jesus, you can't worship Jesus. But that's not usually how it comes. It usually comes when they say, you're being a bad citizen. Your Christianity is making you a bad citizen. Can't you just go along with this? Right? You're a threat to public health. You're a threat to public order. You're a threat to decency. And so the early church was prosecuted for being cannibals because they ate somebody's body and drank somebody's blood. Right? The Lord's Supper. And they're punished for being atheists because they only believed in one God, not the whole Roman pantheon. And they were punished for being immoral because they had these things called love feasts and they greeted one another with a holy kiss. And so they figured that you must be sexually immoral. Those were the things, they weren't, they weren't punished and weren't persecuted for believing that Jesus was God, right? And, and these guys weren't persecuted. Why, why were they persecuted? Because they wouldn't bow down to that God. They didn't care what they thought about Yahweh. You can think whatever you want about Yahweh. You just need to bow down to this, right? And so what keeps a man standing 
and firm in the face of that kind of pressure? It has to be the fear of the Lord because the fear of man is a snare, okay? And we all face, we generally face much smaller versions of this, right? Much smaller versions of what, just, you know, don't, don't worry about that. Nobody will ever know, right? You're away on a trip somewhere. No, you know, it's the whole what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? But we all, if we're honest, are familiar with that. Just compromise on this. Just go along with this. And don't worry about it. Okay? And that's going to lead to our, our third principle. But fearing the Lord is the foundation for standing firm in faith in the midst of that kind of pressure. And, and, and it, unless the Lord produces some sort of tremendous repentance in our country, we're clearly heading that way. Okay? The pressure's coming. It's already, there's already certain things that we believe as Christians that are just absolutely unacceptable societally. Okay? They're, they're caveman beliefs. Like that boys shouldn't become girls and girls shouldn't become boys. That homosexuals can't actually marry. That that's not a thing. It's not real. Right? Those things are absolutely socially unacceptable and depending where you work, they can cost you your job, cost you your livelihood. Okay? So the fear of the Lord. Stalwart, stalwart faith trusts God for the outcome. And you see this, that's the passage I pulled out there. So they say, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. He can do this. We know we can, he, we know he can do this. Right? He will deliver us. We have confidence in him. Uh, but if not, we're still not going to compromise, right? And so they're just, they're fully placing themselves in the Lord's hand. Of course the Lord can, what's a fiery furnace to God, right? What, what's a little persecution at work or at school to God? God can deliver me through this. He can deliver me completely unscathed. But even if he doesn't, I'm still not going to compromise. I'm still going to fear the Lord more than man, Right? It's a stalwart faith that, that trusts God for the outcome. And we're, we're going to get into that a little bit in Hebrews 11, because uh, I, I think there's some important um, little bit of back and forth there. Okay? And then finally, stalwart faith values principle, or you could say truth, or you could say lots of things there, over pragmatism. Right? The pragmatist says, what's the big deal? Right? What's the big deal? So you're on your knees for a couple seconds. What's the big deal? Who cares? You think God really cares about that? Right? Is it really worth, don't you understand that if you take this stand, now I don't, I don't remember the story well enough. I don't know that he, Daniel even speaks to whether or not these men were married, but it's likely they were, likely they had children. So what, you're going to take this dumb, stubborn stand and then leave a widow and kids without a dad? Like, really? That's what you're going to go for? And what about your friends? What about the people who could benefit from your, your care and your instruction? Right? Just the, there's all kinds of pragmatic arguments to be made for compromising. These guys valued the principle, the truth. Obviously, ultimately, they valued the Lord and his glory, his honor, more than what works 
And that's a huge temptation both for Americans and for men. Yeah, but does it work? Does it get the results, right? And to make the choice in the short run that seems the most promising uh, rather than trusting God with the results. And so they were, right, Solar Faith is willing to bear the cost. They knew it could cost their lives. They were willing to bear that. They, they didn't, so it's not like youthful zeal. Hey, I'm going to go die for Jesus. You know, um, wouldn't it be glorious if I go to this tribe and they just kill me? You know, that would be so glorious. It's not that. It's not that. God does clearly call people to do that. But sometimes I think there's a youthful zeal that thinks that that's inherently glorious when it might actually be foolish. So they, they knew the cost. They didn't rush in, you know, heedlessly or foolishly. They were willing to bear it. And then it trusts God with the results, right? Which is the second point, but just making it in context. So if you look at Hebrews 11, it's oftentimes known as the Hall of Faith. And Hebrews 11 is interesting because you see, like, there's remarkable things here, right? There's remarkable examples of births that shouldn't happen. There's, uh, there's resurrections. There's defeating armies. There's uh, tons of blessings. There's tons of successes in the context of Hebrews 11, right? And so, yeah, these, these men and women of faith, there are examples. They're commendable. They're people we should look up to. But in verses 13 to 16... Right? The, the people in the preceding 12 verses all died in faith, not having received the things they promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Right? They're seeking a homeland, that, that this isn't their ultimate home. They're looking forward. They're looking ahead. Uh, and then at the bottom there, uh, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Okay, so they're putting their hope not in this kingdom, not in this earth, but in the earth to come. And then in counterbalance to the positive reports, verses 35b to 38, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All right, so it's both. It's both in this age. Some people trust God and get delivered through the fiery furnace, and it's like, wow, those guys are amazing. Look what they did, All right? And they had an, at least an angel, if not the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity in the fiery furnace with them. Okay, amazing story. Others, beaten, died, destitute, forsaken. And both are examples of faith. And we have to be prepared for both. I don't, I don't see how we can't not be. If we're reading our Bibles right, if we're looking at church history right, we, ha we have to be prepared for both. We have to be willing for both to happen, right? And so I think that that disposition of uh, God is able to deliver us. He will deliver us. And even if he doesn't, here's what we're going to do. Right? That's a right disposition for us as men in a fallen world.
That's stalwart faith, right? No, no matter what happens here, I'm going to trust God. No, no matter what happens here, I'm going to fear the Lord. No matter what happens here, I want His glory to be my ultimate aim. Okay? So, other, what else do you see? Anything else in uh, either of these passages? Daniel 3 or Hebrews 11? Um, anything jump out at you? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. If you, you know, it's that whole, if anyone asks you the reason for the hope that's within you, right? If you live as though the Bible's true and as though God is who he says he is, and as though the gospel is, is, is accurate and powerful, um, sometimes it won't be all that noticeable. Other times it will be dramatically noticeable. Right? And there's a testimony there. Uh, it, it ought to, who we are and what we value ought to raise questions in people's minds. Why do they think that way? Right? Why did they do that with their money and time? Why, you know, um, I think it's in Masculine Mandate. Uh, he talks about a friend uh, whose dad had died at war. And uh, at the funeral, a buddy brought up a picture of, uh, his dad was a, a pilot. And you see all these men like partying and hooting and hollering, and you see this one guy in the back with his head down and his eyes like this. And here, um, it was a party to celebrate them getting their wings to be able to fly. And they had brought in um, illicit females. and. And all the men were engaging it, except for his dad. And his dad was not, he, he had made a commitment to the Lord. He was not going to dishonor the Lord by how he lived. And, uh, and the buddy said, uh, nobody else did what he did, but we all respected him. Right? We all wish we had the guts to do it, but everybody just went along with the immorality. Right? It's that kind of thing, where this guy... You know, he goes to the, like he goes to get his wings. Like that's that's an exciting moment. He's going out with his buddies. That's an exciting moment. He wants to celebrate, right? Probably had no idea what he's getting into. He gets there. He's confronted with uh, temptation, right? Who do you worship? Who do you serve? Nobody's ever going to know. Who's going to know, right? And in that moment, the commitment of his hearts comes to the surface, and so he looks like what many people would consider to be a fool, right? Weak. Uh, prudish, but he's actually displaying tremendous strength uh, in the face of tremendous peer pressure. Okay, and and his son, who would have no way to know about that, finds out years later. This is the kind of man your dad was, right? Somebody took a photo. Here's evidence. This was a this was a testimony to all the men in that room that his son had no idea about until after his dad was dead. Okay, we just, we don't know the implications. We don't know the reverberations of what we do. Um, but we can trust God. What else? Other thoughts, interactions? Yeah. 
So if I heard you right, you said the idea of developing conviction like a muscle over a lifetime versus conviction in a moment. Yeah. Well, certainly, yeah, God can give us grace in a moment. Um, but, but the whole idea of character is this idea of what's developed over time, right? Which, which is in part why our engagement with Scripture is so tremendously important. Because this is God revealing himself to us, speaking to us, right? And it's not like um, Bill Bennett, who was, I think, Secretary of Education, right, has this book of virtues. can be a very useful book, right? But this isn't a book of virtues. This is the book of your creator saying, this is who you are. This is what you're to be. This is what life's about, right? And, and if we know, you know <laughs> that you, you are going to be tested. You're going to be tried. Who you are is going to be revealed. And generally, it's going to be revealed in fire, right? And so, so seeking to cultivate those virtues in advance is hugely powerful. Yeah, Josh. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They did. And, and they, um, what's the word? I mean, you could use negotiated, I think. They said, let us eat these foods, but not those foods. Right? Because those foods were unclean. That's why they didn't want to eat them. Like the Lord had said, don't eat these. And so they're in a foreign land, all right? And, and um, they're, this is the diet. And it's actually a reward, right? Uh, because you're, you're an important official in the kingdom. And so you get, you know, uh, for most people throughout most of history, meat is just an incredible reward. And so here's all this stuff given to them. And they're like, no, we, we want to honor the Lord. He's told us not to eat this. Let us try this diet and see how it works, right? So they didn't go on a hunger strike. They could have. In that situation, they were able to find a way to engage the officials that did not compromise what the Lord had called them to and, and didn't have to just stiff arm them and say, no, we're not doing that. Right? They said, can we do this instead? And, and even that's an expression of faith because they're saying, just test us and see. See how we're doing. Of course, they're doing better than everybody after a couple weeks, I think it was. Right? So again, it's not, it's not like every time there's something we disagree with, we have to, you know, Gandalf, you shall not pass, right? Like, <laughs> I'm not going to bow on this. Um, there, there's a, a wisdom that understands what's an appropriate response. But what they don't bow on is obedience to the Lord. Um, so yeah, that's a good point. Other thoughts, questions? Okay, well, let's talk about work. So just a real brief reminder, right? We've talked about how God created us, put us in the garden to work and keep it. He commissioned Adam. He gave him commands before he created the woman. We, we talked about some of the implications of all that, especially last week. And so the command to work it and to keep it, that's what we want to talk about. Um, do you think do you think work is generally viewed as a positive thing 
in the Christian, and this is an honest question, I don't have an assumed answer, I'm just wondering, in, in the Christian culture, do you think work's generally seen as a positive thing? What's your experience, what do you think? Okay. Yeah. So I think most people don't like Mondays. They prefer yeah. The dread of Monday and the relief of Friday. Yeah. What else? I think the health and wealth gospel indicate that you can do the most thing you work Yeah. 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 Okay. So the the rewards of work without the work itself, right? The magic secret. What about as men? Do you think people tend to speak positively of work and of your role in work? Do you, as Christian men, do you think you hear more encouragements to work or more warnings against work? You know what I mean? How do you, how do you think about work? So let's say, you know, 50 years, okay. What do they say, 2,000 hours a year? Probably conservative. Hundred thousand hours of your life in work outside the home. Of course, that doesn't depending on where you work, but that doesn't include the work that you do at your home, the work that you do in your family, the volunteer work you do at church and other settings. We're talking about a massive, massive amount of our lives. Is that positive or negative? It's worth thinking about, like, what's your disposition towards work? Do you see work as a drudgery? Uh, do you see it as an identity? Right? If, if God, you know, if it's one of two purposes God gave us, work and keep, and if we spend that much time doing it, it seems like we should have uh, a clear, positive, biblical vision. You know, you boys growing up, I don't know what, what you think about work, I know what I thought about work when I was a boy. Ugh. <laughs> Again, right? My dad was a carpenter. Carpenters don't tend to start late in the day. They tend to start early. And uh, since my dad had four sons, all the work he saved for us was the worst work. It was the hottest. It was the heaviest. It was the sweatiest. It was, you know, like, you know, boys, go haul all those shingles up onto the roof. You know, we're going to pour concrete. We're going to, you know. Um, 
And so work had elements of drudgery until I got paid. Then I appreciated that. Appreciated paycheck. Yeah, Gordon. Absolutely. Yeah, you, you've probably heard the stories, but the Nazis, one of the, one of the big ways they would demoralize the Jews in the concentration camps is they'd have a pile of rocks at one end, and they'd say, okay, today we're going to move all these rocks down to the other end. So they would, you know, and they're already, like, malnourished and suffering and struggling. And, um, so they, they work, and they get all the rocks moved, right? Next day they come out, okay, we're moving all those rocks back, Right? And it just became clear this, this work is utterly meaningless, not accomplishing anything. Its whole purpose is to wear you out and to demoralize you. And if you've ever had a job that is anything approaching that, you've felt that dynamic, right? Uh, it, it's, you know, we, were, we were created for work, right? This is Genesis 2. This is before the fall. It's a design feature. It's good. Work is good. Now, it's profoundly affected by the fall, but it's a good thing. Yeah, Josh? When I was just thinking about um, what is work, and, you know, it, it sounds like we're talking about, you know, like vocations. Uh-huh. But as I think about work, I think of, like, as a, as a husband and as a father, I'm like, and then the other things that I do, I, I feel like I'm mostly working. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like, yeah. In some way. Yeah. Like, very, very, not very active. I'm like sitting around and running like, oh man, I just don't have anything to do. You know, like, yeah. Yeah. It's. Is, is everything like, in a way? A lot of it is. A lot more than we recognize, I think. And most of the rest is when we're unconscious, right? So, as far as our conscious waking hours, most of them are filled with work. Right? I mean, you're here. Hopefully you're working. Hopefully you're not resting. Right? Hopefully you're not sleeping. You're, you're, you're thinking. Right? You're engaging. That's work. It's good work, but it's work, it, and it requires work. You know, that's one of the things about Bible study, uh, the, going back to the prosperity gospel, people can feel like, hey, I should be able to open the Bible and just have it instantly make sense to me. Right? What else in your life has gone that way? Is there anything in your life that has gone that way? Like, I know there's like, you know, Doug can probably p- pick up an instrument and it makes sense to him. Like, he's got gifts and abilities that way. But even that has come through years of work, right? And, and, and strengthening, right? For most of us, there's nothing in our life that we just pick up and do well. Uh, and so to have an expectation of work is, is really helpful. And to see, it's very important that theologically that we understand that work predates the fall. Just like we have to understand that manhood and womanhood predates the fall. So manhood and womanhood are profoundly affected by the fall. Work is profoundly affected by the fall. But these realities are creation designs that God intended for us. Okay? And so, yeah, to recognize that so much of our lives are work 
and that uh, what we do in our work matters profoundly. So what's work? I just did a typical dictionary definition there. Uh, Exertion or effort directed to produce or accomplish something or productive or operative activity. And that next word there, telos, is a Greek word, and it just means the end or the goal. So what's the end or the goal of work? Okay. How would we answer that? What, what's the end or the goal of work? To be done. To be done. Yeah. What else? So we could say uh, to, com- to complete or accomplish something. Okay. To obtain or gain. What else? Legacy. Okay. How, how so? Right, so work has to do with our reputation. What else? What, what's the, what are we aiming at with work at Grant? Okay. To glorify God. He quoted 1 Corinthians 10.31, which I have a little bit later. When, when Sovereign Grace was going through all of its polity struggles, Right, and you know, uh, if you know the history of our denomination, our former denomination, they had apostles, okay, and that was the polity of apostles, and then you have local church pastors. And at a certain point, they um, said, We're not going to have apostles anymore, okay, and regardless of what you think about apostles, that was at least a clear line of authority. And there was appeals. If you had a problem with your local church, you could appeal to an apostle. They had authority to come in, interact with your church, right? And then they said, okay, we're not going to do that anymore. We, we don't think that's quite right. And so they pushed the, that to the side. And then there wasn't a polity in its place. And so then at that point, whether or not anybody recognized it, what you had was a, a, a group of like 90 churches that were elder-led and relationally connected with no clear lines of authority, okay? And it was into that situation that a bomb was dropped of conflict. And in that moment of conflict was revealed all kinds of weaknesses, okay? And, and I heard a man talking about this polity weakness, this weakness in understanding leadership. And what he said is, if as a pastor, you don't have a polity, you don't have a, a doctrine of church government and leadership, you literally don't know what you're doing, right? You literally don't know what you're doing. If you don't have convictions from scripture as a pastor of this is what a role of a pastor is and this is what authority is and this, here's the limits of my authority and here's the nature of my authority and here's, right? Similarly, if we don't have a clear understanding of work biblically and yet we're going to work every day we literally don't know what we're doing but if we see what work is biblically and we understand how God calls us to work and we work to glorify God and we work to accomplish things and to uh, for our reputation and you know another big uh, category for work I think is to love our neighbors Work is a huge way that we love our neighbors, okay? And, and part of where you see that is when you don't have work, 
okay? Because then both your immediate neighbors, your family, your wife, your kids, those who are relying on you for provision, all of a sudden they've got great need, right? You yourself are like struggling with what am I for? Like what, what, what am I, what's my purpose in the world? It's not unusual to see uh, men especially retire and die fairly quickly because what they had, what they had been about in life all of a sudden, it just goes away, and then they feel like they're, they're not for anything. They're not making any contribution to anything, right? So work does profoundly affect our purpose uh, and, and our sense of purpose. Work is a huge category where the Lord works to sanctify us because of the temptations in the workplace. Um, and so understanding what's the end of work, why did God put Adam in the garden and, and tell him to uh, work it and keep it, right? Why did he call him to exercise dominion and be fruitful and multiply? So I think those, those four categories that we've talked about of exercising dominion, being fruitful and multiply, working and keeping, all those have to go into us understanding what work is. Where last week we talked about the three Ps of provide, protect, and procreate. How does work relate to those purposes in a man's life? Okay. That can be a very helpful uh, tool for us to think about our work. So my work allows me to provide for my family. Right? That's huge. That's huge that I can do that. I've had jobs that did not provide for my family very well at all. I've had jobs that provided for my family well. Um, uh, it's true that um, we should be content and trust the Lord, you know, that the, the always abused Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? I can dunk the basketball through Christ who strengthens me. I can run the 4.240 through Christ. The, the, the context of that verse is money. I've had a, Paul says, I've had a lot, and I've had a little. And I've learned to trust Christ in both. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Okay? So, um, so work allows us to provide for our families. It allows us to protect, right? Have a home, shelter, right? Have the things that we need to, uh, to care for those that the Lord has entrusted to us. Work allows us to provide for, for our neighbors. Work allows us to be generous. So I've been in Christian circles where uh, poverty is pious, right? If I'm poor, I'm more holy because I don't have a lot of stuff. Have you ever been in a context like that? And, and where wealth is, by definition, impious, it's suspect that the wealthy person can't be godly. Because look at all the stuff, look at all the money they have, look at all the stuff they have. What, what do you think the Bible, let's talk about that a second. What do you think the Bible, what, what do you see the Bible saying about wealth? You ever look at that much? It's a test. Okay, how so? 
Yeah. Yeah, you look at uh, page 17. I have Proverbs 30 there. Print it out for you. Verses 8 and 9. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. And then he says, give me neither poverty. So he's, he's putting up a spectrum, right? Poverty and riches. And he's saying, I want to be somewhere in here, somewhere in between. Right? Don't give me poverty or riches. Feed me with the food that's needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Which, which end of the spectrum says that? Riches, right? Riches says, I have all I need, and actually, I'm the one who did it. Aren't I something? Who's the Lord? Right? Riches is the attitude of Nebuchadnezzar. Who's the God who's going to deliver you out of my hand? Okay. So, lest I be full and deny you and say the Lord, or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So, the, the person here is tempted to desperation. Like, I don't have food to live on. What am I supposed to do? Right? Well, I, I guess I got to steal. Right? I guess I got I to get what I need by whatever means possible. The person here is tempted to arrogance and independence. I did it on my own. And so this is a prayer to say, Lord, keep me from poverty and riches. Okay. So that, that's a very helpful, but that's not all that the Bible says about wealth. What else, what else do we see about wealth in Scripture? It's a gift from God. Okay. What were you Okay, so, so Jesus talked about camels and needles, right? And which would be the difficulty of uh, entering his kingdom as a rich person. But then Seth talked about wealth is a gift from God. Like, what do we make of the patriarchs? Some of those dudes were fabulously wealthy. Okay, so, and, and the, one of the temptations for us is to see the problem is the stuff, right? That stuff is what's the problem, when it's usually not the stuff. It's the heart attitude and its engagement with the stuff. It's, it's the heart and how it thinks it got the stuff. What else do you see in the Bible on wealth? Should, so let me say this. You're raising a son. What do, you, what do you tell him about wealth? Do you tell him to pursue it? Do you tell him to avoid it? How should, how should your, your sons think about wealth? Okay. 
And that was which passage? First Timothy six seventeen. Yeah. So page page fifteen. We're jumping around a little bit. I didn't mean to get into it this way, but if you look about two thirds of the way down uh, on page fifteen, First Timothy six. Let's look at that passage because there's there's a number of important truths there and misconceptions. So six through ten. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we, but if we have food and clothing, with these we'll, we will be content. So just to stop there a second. You've probably heard those verses before. I doubt any of us believe them. <laughs> if you're honest. Like, seriously, if you just had food and clothes... Would you be content with that? Yeah, trust. also leave out shelter. Yeah, right. It's, you ever see the Brian Regan bit where he loses his luggage and he goes to the airport counter and they're like, here's your necessities bag. And it's this little thing. He's like, oh, these are the necessities. You know, yeah. I thought it was all those clothes I had packed. You know, uh, This must have food and shelter and love. You know. Um, <laughs> sure. But do we really, so just think if, you know, think your Job. Job's whole life's work is taken away from him in a moment. Another remarkable example of stalwart faith. Everything he had worked for, everything, everything, all of his wealth, his whole legacy, all his children, right? And then his health. And he says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. And the Bible's really explicit. In all this, Job did not sin or um, he, he did not blame God or sin with his lips, right? Remarkable. But do you really think that if you had food and clothing that you would be content with just those? If we just had food and clothing, think about how hard that would be. All I have is food and clothes. Oh yeah, no problem. Totally content. Right? That's what I'm saying. It's one of those verses that we know and we just kind of keep chugging along, which is why I wanted to stop and just think about it. Could I be content with just food and clothes? There were certainly moments in YWAM when I felt like I just had food and clothes. Uh, but we had more than that, even in YWAM. Okay. Um, so... Godliness with contentment is great gain. We know we brought nothing in the world. We know we can't. You know, we know the pharaohs and their their buried treasures and all that. That we know that's not going on with them, right? We know that. Um, and if we had food and clothing, with these we'll be content. And then, okay, so here's a temptation for the rich. Those who, or no, 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 I'm sorry. This is actually, I think, a temptation for the poor. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It's always, isn't it interesting that the prosperity gospel guys go to like some of the poorest nations on the earth and have tremendous success. These are people who hardly have anything, and the little bit of extra they have, they're sending to the Benny Hens and others, right? Why is that? Well, I think it's the desire to be rich. 
Oh, maybe this is the path. Maybe this is the way to get what I need. Right? And then verse 10, which is one of the most misunderstood, mistranslated, misapplied passages in Scripture. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So it's not that money is the root of all evils. That's not what the Bible says. It says the love of money, not money, the love of money. Money is an inanimate, it's not even a real thing. Right? It's a pretend thing. We all, we all agree that this paper or your cryptocurrency or your quote-unquote precious metals that are just a metal, right? We're all saying, let's, let's give this value, right? Like, so you're, you're giving hours of hours of your lives to either the business that you own or whoever you work for. And anymore, what you tend to get is a transfer of ones and zeros into a computer that your bank has that reads that you now have X amount of dollars, right? That's your paycheck, okay? You're trading your life for some digits on a computer that allows you to take a basically worthless piece of paper or more commonly a piece of plastic and, and produce things that you want, right? That's, that's how our system works. Uh, it's very interesting when you think about it. And, and Paul does not say, that stuff, that money, that's the root of all evil. He says, no, the love of money is a root, not even every root, it's one root, of all kinds of evils. Okay? So I don't think the Bible has a negative view of wealth. I think all things considered, the Bible actually has a very positive view of wealth. The Bible has some profound warnings about wealth and the dangers of wealth, but the danger isn't the wealth itself. The danger is what the fallen human heart does with wealth, right? And the temptation for the rich is the pride that says, who is the Lord? It's the independence um, that says, I'm above all this, right? Because that's one of, the, one of the fruits of wealth is uh, you can avoid things that lots of other people can't avoid. You can insulate yourself from problems, okay? Um, the, so the, the fruit of pride towards God and towards others Oop, not only did I provide all this for myself, but I'm better than all those other people who don't have the provision that I have. Okay? So the Bible has all kinds of warnings against what our sinful hearts can do with wealth. But the Bible also has lots of examples of God richly blessing people. And if you think of the promises of, you know, Jesus said that if we give up things in this age, We'll get 10 times, 100 times as much in this age and in the age to come. And then when you think of the age to come, do you think of it as a place of poverty or wealth? It's a place of great wealth, right? Great riches, 
streets of gold, right? Uh, homes that have been lovingly prepared, uh, a city that's bejeweled, right? F food in abundance, feasting in the presence of our God, the absolute absence of tears and sufferings and sorrow. So the new heavens and the new earth are a place of great wealth in the presence of the Lord. Okay? So we don't want to it's easy to um, fall off on either extreme. So, godliness with contentment is great gain. This world's not our home, right? We bring nothing into it, take nothing out. Um, if we want to be rich, uh, we will easily fall into a trap. Uh, and if we love money, all kinds of evil will come into our lives, right? It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, go to verse 17. As for the rich in this age, and this has to assume the, the rich in the church, charge them not to be haughty, that's proud, arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Doug quoted this. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to sh share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is truly life. So if you are wealthy, what are you to do? Don't put your hope in riches. Realize that riches are uncertain, Right? You think you got it. It's the, it's the dude in the Gospels who built the storehouse and says, oh, I can finally just r relax and enjoy all this. And Jesus said, you fool, tomorrow you die. Everything you labored is going to somebody else. Okay? Riches are uncertain. Um, so don't put your hope on those, but put your hope on God who provided those riches to you. And he provided them to you to enjoy, not to feel guilty about, and you should do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. And as you do that, you're storing up treasure for yourself as a good foundation for the future. Okay? So the, the, the wealthy are to see what they have as a gift from God and to be generous with it. So it's not, it's not inherently more pious to be poor. Now, at different points in history, people have gone the other way, too. Oh, well, they're wealthy because they're so godly. Right? They must be. They must have God's favor because look at all the stuff they have. Right? And you, and you do see that in Scripture, right? You see someone has God's favor and God blesses them and they're wealthy. But that's not always the equation, is it? So going back to that question I asked, what would you say to your son about wealth? How do you, how do you counsel your son about wealth? What, what, should he, what should he think? What should he do? Should he pursue it? Should he run away from it? What do you think? Yeah. Don't let your wealth master you. You need to master your wealth. 
Yeah, no, it's good. Yeah, that issue of mastery and recognizing how easily, uh, and, and wealth doesn't just mean, of course, money. There's all kinds of things that we have that are wealth, right? Um, to, to the point of almost ridiculousness, almost being overwhelmed. You know, I think I talked about this, right? Coming into the Atlanta airport and having such a hard time making a decision on what food to eat because I had this wealth of choices in front of me of, you know, I, have, I got 20 restaurants I could eat in. The things that we have access to right now, the, the like this device and what you have access to with this device is incredible wealth. Right? And, and, and the things that you can know about God and his world, or the things you can know about the devil and his kingdom and experience through just this little device. I remember I got a laptop in the 90s that had six gigabyte hard drive. And I was like, six gigabyte? Like, I'll never fill all that, right? <laughs> this thing's huge. Uh, and, and so the, the wealth of information that we have at our fingertips, the wealth of options that we have available to us, how, how, how do we engage with those things? Yeah, Josh. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've seen do great things. I've seen it do terrible things. I think that making it a goal, in my opinion, isn't something that I would tell our heroes to do. I would tell them to seek first the kingdom hmm. of God. And if God gives you wealth, yeah. Great. Okay. If God gives you poverty, trust them anyway. But I don't know if I would tell him to make that the goal because that's the sort of thing job is like uh-huh. whose kingdom of uh-huh. Am I building my kingdom? Am I building the Lord's kingdom? And if I'm building my kingdom, it's usually because I'm trying to pursue wealth. Like I'm getting, I'm getting pulled into what I'm wealth. Yeah. Whereas if I'm pursuing the Lord, that's secondary. Okay. Like if it comes great, and, and chances are it will, because He'll bless me. Uh huh. But that's that's how you know it is pursue the Lord's first. Okay. Pursue him, his kingdom, what his kingdom do on this earth? Do that. Yeah. Pursue him, and, and if wealth comes, then praise him. If it doesn't come, trust him. Okay. Trust him anyway. Okay. Yeah. That's good. So, um, but he still has to make a choice. Like, what career should I pursue? Right. What, what should I do with this day? Should, should wealth be part of the equation? Should it be something he thinks about? Right? Um, I think so in the context of provision. Like, it, you know, obviously, if he wants to go flip burgers, I'm going to say, come on, man, like, that's not going to cut it. Okay. Um, but if he wants to, you know, be a whatever, engineer, financial advisor, whatever, he wants to, like, pursue something for the sole goal of making six figures, mm-hmm. I would say, yeah, that's. Okay. In my opinion, yeah. Because you're making the goal your salary, you're 
Yeah. No, I agree. I'm just, I'm yeah. like, right. This, my goal in life shouldn't be, uh, let me be as wealthy as possible. Right. I think that's so those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. I think that's a very clear passage. Um, how do we then integrate into our thinking a right pursuit of, you know, when I got married, I realized, so like I talked to my boys when they work, because uh, you know, when you're growing up and you're working, depending on your age, you want to spend all your money on like Nerf guns or Legos or, right? And I said to them, hey, you know, in a few years, you're going to want a truck, right? So save this money, like, yeah, you can spend a little bit, but let's save money for a truck. And then I say to them, you know what comes with a truck? A girlfriend. And they're really expensive. You need even more money, right? And, and I'm trying to envision them for, like, this, it's not just the truck. You know, there's a lot more in life. And, and so you, um, you realize, man, if I'm going to have a wife, I'm going to need some money. And then we're going to have kids. And then I'm going to need more money, right? And then what about anything else in life? And what about actually being able to help other people out? Like, that, that seems like a good biblical thing to do, right? One of the commands in Scripture is to be hospitable. I can't be hospitable if I don't have a place to have people to and money to buy food, you know, like, so you just realize, and that's, that's going back to that uh, principle of stepping into responsibility. As men, as we get older, you know, when I was young, um, I remember the first car I bought was a 1980, I don't remember if it was 80 or 81, Ford Fiesta, burnt orange, ugly, ugly car, 800 bucks. Um, but I loved that car because I had worked so hard to get the money to buy that car, and I insured it, and I paid for, I paid for everything, right? I upgraded the stereo from J.C. Whitney, put new carpet in it, you know, seat covers. Um, and it was my wealth. Like, I, I had given myself to, like, hot, sweaty summers of shingling and concrete and all this stuff, and now I had a vehicle, and I had independence. I can go do stuff with my friends, Right, um, and uh, I was late for a baseball game that I was supposed to pitch at, and I missed the bus, uh, and so I had to drive my car to the game, and that little car was such a piece of junk that uh, and I was speeding on the back roads of Iowa, and the um, a screw rattled loose, and the throttle got stuck wide open, <laughs> and it was you know it was a, a stick shift. And so I come flying into the town where I'm going to play baseball, and I can't slow down because my, my throttle's stuck wide open. And so I dumbly push in the clutch thinking to shift, and it goes, whee! You know, the, and, and so I just ended up shutting off the car and, like, coasting uh, to the high school. And I realized, you know, it'd probably be nice to have a little better car. So, so when I go to my baseball game, it doesn't rattle apart and threaten lives, right? Uh, like, these are life lessons. You learn, you learn things like that. Um, 
And so work does that for us, right? Work gives us opportunities to learn life lessons like that. Work gives us opportunities to, to make provision, right? Work gives us, you know, there, there was always a very satisfying sense of completion when we finished shingling a church roof, you know? It was old, it was worn out, it was garbage. We tore it off, it took weeks. Everything we did was by hand. We didn't have any air tools or anything. Um, and you'd get it done and it was beautiful and it was orderly and it was gonna last for decades. And I had, I had loved my neighbors, served my church, right? Um, I loved my dad, worked with my dad, helped him, earned money, had a sense of accomplishment, right? I was able to give, I was able to purchase things I needed, right? Work provides all these things for us and all of that's good. There's temptations in it, but it's all good. Um, and so thinking intentionally and biblically about work is really important. I think it's interesting that, uh, going back to page 14, and this, uh, tonight did not at all go like I <laughs> intended, but if you go back to page 14, look at the qualifications for the, the two offices in the church in 1 Timothy 3. So there's two positions, uh, two offices in the church that God has ordained, the, the overseer or elder or pastor and the deacon. What are the qualifications for these men? Do you see how most of them revolve around work? So you have to be above reproach. What does that mean? Means no one can lay a charge of wrongdoing, significant wrongdoing at your feet. Not that you're not a sinner. Of course you're a sinner, right? Uh, well, where where is that engaged? Well, in our interactions with others, and so much of, so many of them are in work. Okay, the husband of one wife, that's a kind of work. Your your marriage. Sober-minded, where do you get a reputation for being sober-minded? In relation to others, in, in relation to your works. Self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Now, able to teach, which is a kind of work. That's something that's not required of every man, but it's still a kind of work. Not a drunkard. That's the avoidance of work. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well. And that phrase household encompasses more than just our wife and kids. Right? Because especially at that time, but throughout most of history, your household was your entire economy, which included your marriage and kids, but it also included all the work that you did. And it included extended relationships beyond that. So basically, what, what are the fruits of this man's labors? What has he done in life? And, and let's evaluate that uh, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And so that's getting back to that principle of authority flows to those who take responsibility. If how you exercise your authority and take responsibility for what God has given you in life 
is the key evaluatory tool for whether or not you should step into more authority and responsibility as an elder. And then similarly, as a deacon, even though their uh, responsibilities are different, uh, it's in verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing the children and their own households well. Okay, so let's look at the fruit of a man's hands. Let's look at the works that he has done. And then that becomes the evaluatory tool for seeing, can he fill these roles? Okay, and then for elders, it's, are they able to teach and are they not a recent convert? Those are two other qualifications. But the rest of these qualifications are just Christian qualifications. And these are marks of Christian masculinity. So th this would be another way that you can look at your work. Okay? And you can look at the works of your life. Um, am I the husband of one wife? Am I sober-minded? Am I self-controlled? Am I above reproach? Am I respectable? Am I hospitable? Right? Am I not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money? Do I manage my household well? Okay, that's the primary work of a man. Do I manage my household well? Right, the, the very, the most intimate responsibilities that the Lord has given me, do I manage those well? What's the fruit of my work in that sphere? Okay, and both elders and deacons are called to that because then he likens the church to God's household. Okay, and God doesn't want to put someone in a position of authority and responsibility in his house who has not exercised authority and responsibility in his own house well. So I think there's, there's a, a pattern and a pointer there um, for us as men to look at work and what work, the, the role of work in our lives. Um, Trying to think what's going to be helpful. Uh, questions, interactions with any of this or anything related? Yeah, Brent. Yeah, no, that's a great, it's a great point. Let me, um, if you understand work, going back to Josh's point earlier, if you understand that our lives are filled with works every day, right, um, and that God gives us just this incredible breadth of responsibility, uh, and you understand that he calls us to engage those works in faith, 
uh, for his glory and for the good of our neighbors. Um, I think a temptation for the guy who's living for his, his quote-unquote work, meaning his uh, paid career-type work, is in that setting, there's a clearer kind of path to success and achievement and accomplishment. There's clearer rewards. Um, there's clearer paths to respect, right? If I, can, if I can move up the ladder in this way, I'll make more money, uh, I'll have people reporting to me, I'll be esteemed in the eyes of others, right? And then that same guy goes home and there's not much of a path to advancement in the home. Like how do you advance in the home, right? At the end of the day, husband and father, like those titles don't change. You get promoted to grandpa. <laughs> to grandpa, that is a good, actually I'm so much looking forward to that time. Um, but, you know, you can grow in esteem in those roles, but at the end of the day, you don't, get, you don't go from husband to, like, super husband, <laughs> right? You're just husband. And, and the nature of that work is rarely so tidy. It, it's much more ongoing and demanding. The nature of being a father is much more ongoing and demanding. Um, you know, it's one of the things, it's one of the reasons, I might have mentioned this, but it's one of the reasons I like to do carpentry projects around my house is because, you know, there was nothing there and I built that. And hey, it's, hey, look, like there's, I did something. Whereas in my role here, there's not a lot of measurable progress. Um, and the ways that you're tempted to measure things aren't helpful. Like, oh, we have more people. Well, okay, that's good, I hope, right? Um, so. When, when we're in positions of care, of, of, of um, leading, it, so it's not just care, it's, it's responsibility, it's leading, it's authority, but it's care and it's people. Um, I think for us as men, the temptation to minimize that or even resent that, right? I mean, I see that in my own heart. Um, and, in, you know, some of, some of that is, so when I, I've done lots of different jobs, uh, most of the jobs I've done have been more like construction related, haven't had a lot of people problems, right? It's been more like, oh, you know, opened a wall and there's this huge problem or couldn't get the supplies I needed or whatever. Um, but especially in the role I'm in now, most of my job is dealing with people problems. And then I go home and I get to deal with more people problems, right? And so the temptation to resent, and that's not all my home is, thankfully, right? But uh, the temptation to resent the people problems in my home is very real. And yet that's the work that the Lord calls me to. But I don't get paid for that work. I get paid to deal with people's problems here. That's at least some consolation, you know, at the end of the day. Uh, I go home and do it for free, right? Uh, so I, the way I think about that and have to engage with that goes back to 
what has the Lord given me? What am I responsible for? And so that might be a good note to, to stop on tonight. Um, let me find that. I'm so out of order. Uh, bottom of page 15, the idea of vocation. That, that Latin word there, vocare, is just the word to call. And so God calls us as men to responsibilities. And that Grant quoted 1 Corinthians 10.31, right? Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So whatever God calls us to as men is the work he has for us. And everything that we do is before the face of God. It's in God's presence. It's under God's authority. And so our, our vocations, our callings, are, are responsibilities God's given us to love our neighbors and to glorify him. And then that uh, top of 16 there, that sentence, re- or that phrase, recognizing the invisible hand of providence. So when, when you recognize that God in his providence has put you in different places, and that is his call to you. So if you're married, God has called you to be a husband. If you have children, God has called you to be a father. Right? If whatever your responsibilities are in life, in the church, maybe you're a care group leader, or you're a deacon, or you're, you serve on the ushering team, or you serve in trust, or like, it doesn't matter what you do. Those are the callings that God has for you. That's his call on your life. Right? And there's certain, you know, like in pastoral circles, there's this whole thing of the pastoral call. And I knew when I was 10 years old that I was going to be a pastor. And, you know, it's blown up to these impossible proportions. And, you know, you do see, you do see the Lord calling the prophets especially in Scripture. Okay? But, but what happens is this kind of internal subjective sense rides over everything. Right? When I was 10 years old, I was convinced the Lord was calling me to play professional sports. I knew it, like I was gonna be a professional athlete. Um, and then I wasn't, right? You know, you reach a certain point, and it's like, okay, well, sports are, at least competitive sports in that realm are done. Um, but then I was a student, and then I, I worked in YWAM, and then I came out here and I was, and I've spent like the last 20 years basically being a student. And, and filling other roles. Like, those are the things, what, what has the Lord given you that you're responsible for? That's your calling. What, what neighborhood has he put you in? That's your calling. What wife has he given you? That's your calling. He didn't call you to be a, a husband in the abstract. He called you to be a husband in relation to this woman and the strengths and weaknesses that she has. What actual children has the Lord given you? That's your calling. These kids and, and these joys that you get through them and these problems that you have with them and, you know, and, and, you know, what the, you know, whatever your work schedule is, nine to five, seven to, well, you know, it doesn't matter. Like, the, the responsibilities you have in that, the burdens you have in that, 
the, the interactions with others you have in that, that's your calling. Okay? What other roles in the community has the Lord given you? Those are your callings. What care group has he put you in? That's your calling. Right? And so just recognizing this invisible hand of providence that puts us in all these places in contact with all of these people uh, helps us to get away from some abstractions and to make it really concrete. Okay? So Paul in Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. But what it really says is, Tom, love Loretta as Christ loved the church. Right? And John loved Muriel as Christ loved the church, right? Like the, it, it's very specific to us. And so we have to take these you know, huge, great, abstract truths and, and then actually apply them to the day-to-day reality of our lives. Right? And you young men are in varying stages of looking at young women and saying, is there one for me that God's calling me to love as Christ loved the church. And, and, and one, one thing I consistently say in premarital counseling is no one in this world will reveal your grasp of the gospel more than your wife. She will uh, demonstrate how well you understand and apply the gospel. And the call to husbands in Ephesians 5 to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up to her, that he might present her to himself, right? When, when, when a young man stands before God and all these witnesses and says, I do, I promise, he's taking on tremendous responsibility for his wife and her holiness, right? Because it says, what did Jesus do? He sanctified the church. And then it says, in the same way, husbands, love your wives. And so part of the work of a husband is the holiness of his wife. And part of the temptation for a husband is to resent the sin of his wife and not engage her lovingly and patiently for her good and God's glory, but to either blow her off or manage her Right? Well, we just won't talk about that topic because that one never goes well. Right? Or to nurture kind of grudges. You know, she's just so unreasonable. You know, as opposed to see, no, 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 the Lord has brought this woman into my life as a prime area for me to work. Right? Now, that's not all this, thankfully. But that's a lot of what it is. It's work. I have responsibility now. And, and, and so how do I help this woman become who God has created her to be? Right? That's so much of what being a husband is. So, so just thinking through uh, what are the roles and responsibilities that the Lord has given you? What, what has the invisible hand of providence called you to? So if you're a student right now, that's God's calling. God has called you to be a student. If you're a young man, God's called you to be in preparation for what you'll be when you're older, in preparation for being a husband and a father, 
So if you're a young man, you ought to be thinking about, okay, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd like to get married one day. What, what do I need to do? Like, how do I need to grow to be a man who's ready to do that? Right? What, what like, there's practical things like, you know, uh, I can't get married because I literally can't afford to support a wife. That, that would be something to work on, right? Or I could get married, but, you know, uh, the best I can do right now is eight seventy-five an hour, and so we're both going to have to, you know, okay, well, maybe that's where you're at right now. Is there anything you can do to change that? Right? There's practical things like that too, right? But there's, there's also profound things like, what do you say to your wife when she's struggling, you know, um, what, do you, what do you say to your wife when she says, I'm just so discouraged with all my relationships. I, I don't feel like I have any true friends. What do you say to your wife in that situation? What, what do you say to your wife when she's struggling with a medical issue and you just, there's no, there's no answers? What, what do you say to your wife when you both desperately want to get pregnant and you can't get pregnant? What do you say then? Right? And that's a husband's role. That's a husband's responsibility to care for a woman in a, in a situation like that. Okay, and a, and a thousand other things. So um, we'll obviously talk about this more, but uh, I'll end there for now. But questions, interactions? Gordon. Yeah, I, I think you're getting at that dynamic of, because obviously this is financial, but it's not just this, right? And so, you know, I think 
as men, there can be a temptation to go to these extremes here too. So the, the riches says, you know, I've got it all figured out. Right? And if we just do X, Y, and Z, we're good. Don't have to worry about anything. And the poverty says, I don't know. I ain't got a clue. Right? My wife's more spiritual than me. What? I don't know what you say. Right? And, and the place of faith, of being mastered by the Lord, is a place of dependence. So yeah, I can't tell you how many times as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, I'm like, Lord, I don't know what to say. <laughs> like, right? I, you know, this person just dropped a bombshell. What do I say in this moment? But at the end of the day, I'm going to open my mouth and say something. Right? Like, I have to. I have to. And that something's going to come from somewhere. And, and does the Holy Spirit give us things? Absolutely. Right? But, but so much of it is also tied to my pursuit of God outside of that moment, studying Him in His Word, knowing His character and His ways, applying those things in my life, right? Recognizing I'm a sinner in need of grace. If that's the end of the story, we got a problem, right? Because have I experienced grace or not? Do I have anything to offer to anyone else? I'm not just a sinner in need of grace. I'm a sinner who's received grace. And inasmuch as I've received the grace of God, I have something to offer to others that's not of myself, right? It's, it's the Lord and his grace. But it's the Lord and his grace that I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, right? And so uh, it, it's absolutely right for us to never leave that position of ultimate dependence that doesn't uh, say, who is the Lord, Right? I got it all figured out. I got all the answers. I got, you know, um, because, the, you know, the temptation here is to say it's your wife, to, to give her the answer, and then be like, well, why aren't you, why didn't that fix everything? Like, I just told you the answer. Aren't you, aren't you okay now? Like, why are you crying? <laughs> like, what's the problem? You know, and, and the temptation here is to just be like paralyzed. Right? I don't know. I don't know. What, do you, what, what am I supposed to say? Well, I, I'll just never. You should go talk to so-and-so. Right? And, of course, there's always a time to bring others in. But I think the humble man says, this is what the Lord has called me to. Right? I experienced that pastorally, too. And I'll say to guys, look, I'm not rent-a-pastor. I'm not rent-a-husband. You need to husband your wife. I'm happy to be her pastor. You, I, I'm not going to step in and do something that you need to do as a husband. Uh, and so it's good for us to, to feel like, yeah, I don't have all the answers. I don't know. I need the Lord. And then it's good for us to pursue him so that we do actually have answers. We, we have, uh, you know, this, the, the helpful phrase I've heard was 1 Timothy 3. Um, these qualifications, the way I'd always heard it before is nobody measures up to this, but we do our best. And then I heard someone say, actually, you need to have these qualifications at a level appropriate to the office, right? So if the Lord has given you an office of husband, you need to have husband-level abilities and skills. And if you look at yourself and see areas where you're falling short, then pursue growth, right? Humbly in dependence on the Lord.
if, if you're seeing a pattern of uh, conflict, say, or a pattern of where you feel like you're not able to help your wife, cry out to the Lord, right? My, my wife always struggles this way, and Lord, I don't know what to say to her. Help me to know what to say, right? And some, sometimes the right thing to say doesn't produce the immediate results you want, but that's part of faith too. Um, so we, uh, yeah, we, I don't want to get too deep into that, but other questions or thoughts or interactions? Okay, it's, it's late. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you that you have um, created us and called us, that, that every one of us have vocations from you. We have relationships and responsibilities that you have given us. Uh, we have relations and responsibilities in the, in the future that we may not even know about but you've prepared those things for us to walk in them. And, and we pray that as men, that you would help us to walk humbly before you in faith, that you'd help us to uh, fully embrace the, the scope of responsibilities that you've given us so that we can carry those things for your glory and for the good of those uh, that you've entrusted to our care. Please help us to work um, diligently in a faith-filled way Help us to work looking to you, relying on you. Um, help us to work in a way that testifies to your goodness and grace in our lives uh, so that you will receive the glory that you deserve. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.